0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. Tom Burgoyne, along with my pal, John Brazier, director of Fun and Games. John, yep. Yeah. And uh, and the hits just keep coming. We have another uh, a guy we haven't talked to in a while, John, so I'm really thrilled that uh, he's able to join us on the podcast today. It's former general manager
1: of the Phillies, Ed Wade. How you doing, Ed?
2: I'm doing fine, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming on. And uh, actually, Ed, you're a recent grandparent, right?
2: Uh, well, yeah, fairly recent. We've got a six. Six of four, and a one and a half year old. So we're yeah we're uh, we're wall to wall babysitting about four days a week.
1: <laughs> oh, nice! That's great. Congratulations. Is that your Thank son? You. Um, uh, no, our, our,
2: our, our daughter, daughter Erin, uh, who still lives in the area, and works for Comcast Corporate. Uh, uh, she and her husband, uh, we've got uh, Ramona is six, uh, Lorenzo is four, and Reina's one and a half. So we're we're uh, we're keeping busy uh, doing those types of things. These now, days.
1: was Erin the one that worked for Villanova basketball?
2: Yeah, Aaron. Aaron was Jay Wright's assistant for a number of years, yeah. and then left there and went to uh, went to work uh, for for a consulting company in Washington. Did some work out of the Pentagon, and then ended up at Comcast Corporate here. So, yeah, she's uh, she's uh, still in the area. Our son, son Ryan, lives in Dallas now. He's uh, he went from being a uh, from the Naval Academy to a, a ship driver to a Colorado State Trooper. Now he's an, an, an anesthetist, and then our daughter Maureen oh. is. Uh, is uh, is working for she had been with home ba- or had been with wounded warrior project in jacksonville for a couple of years and for the last three years she's been with home base which is a uh, uh ptsd traumatic brain injury uh charitable group up in boston uh, affiliated with the mass general hospital in the Red Sox.
0: wow boy i, I mean you've done good work with
2: those three huh well, ba baseball will do that you keep you keep people like me out of the house long enough <laughs> <laughs> your 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 wife uh, figures out how to do really good things with them
0: and now' they're th- I'm sure your daughter's thrilled to have uh, built in babysitters because uh, you know that's huge, and uh, I'm sure great for you guys
2: yeah no it's, it's, uh, they're my three best friends in, enjoy uh, we enjoy spending time around them although uh, uh, I, that that country western song comes to mind every once in a while. I love to see them go. Love to, love to hate to see them go. Love to watch them leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh man,
1: yeah. I guess we're we're all getting to that stage. Well, in Tom life. has a uh, senior in in high school right now, so he's going to be an empty nester yeah, next year. Yeah, because we have
0: two out of college, and uh, yeah, uh, our our third will be uh, going to college this year. So uh, yeah, kind of empty nest. It's crazy, Ed, how oh, time yeah. flies.
2: Yeah, you know, just, just tell everybody to slow down a little bit. Enjoy, <laughs> yeah. uh, enjoy every moment of it if they think that you can.
0: Exactly. Well, uh, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, we love going through uh, our guests' uh, great backgrounds, you know, and, and how you uh, achieved the success that you did, you know, tops in your field. You know, it's just really cool. John and I have had a great time with this podcast, talking to people who have had success. And, um, you know, you, you grew up in uh, western Pennsylvania. and Oh, um, well, not western. Well, we're central. Northern no, north no, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, oh. Car Carbondale, 16 miles north of Scranton.
0: Okay, yeah, okay, north, all right. Yeah, Ed, yeah, the yeah, fanatic's sure. not very good at <laughs> geography. I take oh, it
2: you weren't a geography major no. in school. <laughs> well,
0: you, it is true. I knew you were outside of Scranton, and that's uh, yeah, a little further east, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: one, 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 once they once they told you that the earth wasn't flat, you sort of lost interest.
1: Wait, Ed, can I can I can <laughs> oh, I can I? I you know where I'm this. gonna go right here because you just did it again. I <laughs> I went with the fanatic uh, many 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 years ago. Carlos Bierga had a uh, charity softball game, and uh, <laughs> so we're, we're it's in Puerto Rico in San Juan. So I was lucky enough to be the fanatic's escort. So I go down there with the fanatic, and. Um, and, I, and he had the one game, and it was all the Latino players, the Alomars and the Consecos and, uh, you know, Carlos Bjarga and a lot of guys, and uh, the Fanatic was going to perform his routine in the fifth inning. Well, he didn't t- He wouldn't tell me, as, as his assistant, he wouldn't tell me what he was going to do. So he's, he wanted me to go into the stands in Puerto Rico and, and gauge the uh, fans, uh, their reaction to his routine. So Tom goes out there, or I'm sorry, the fanatic goes out there in the fifth inning, and he's got a sombrero, he's got a poncho, and he's dancing to uh, La Bamba. And so, in about you know, in the next inning, I see him down in the locker room, and I'm you know, and he said, "What did you think? What what the fans think?" I said, "Tom, th- it probably would have gone over better if we were in um, Mexico, but we're in Puerto <laughs> yeah. Rico, and, and what you did right there had nothing to do with Puerto Rico." And, and I just think the fanatic didn't really take geography classes in uh, no, the way fanatic, back when. Uh, only knows the yeah. Galapagos
0: Islands and Philadelphia, and then he's a little. Uh, after that, it's yeah,
2: he he's gets well, a little confused. Bad. That that's why we're all blessed with the opportunity to have worked in baseball because otherwise we probably had no really really good skills to use in any other field of <laughs> endeavor.
0: <laughs> uh well you got into baseball, Ed, and I guess that's my first question for you. Like when you were a kid, were you a diehard baseball fan? Was that your favorite sport that, you know, were you a Phillies fan of growing up outside of Scranton or uh you know? You
2: know actually growing up in that area um you know probably by by the product of of early cable tv I, I grew up a yankees fan and really was a yankees fan until uh until i went to temple and uh began to follow the club at that point i graduated from from high school in 73 and and went to temple uh, played baseball there for two and a half years and and but uh, really started to develop an interest in the phillies at that point but but realistically uh you know the primary reason that uh, that that Phil uh, the Phillies landed on my radar screen, or or, or I landed on them, was uh, was the opportunity to, uh, to to get an internship with uh, with the Phillies the day after my 21st February, February 1st, 77. Larry Shank uh, hired me for uh, for I uh, tell people 250 an hour and all the tasty cakes I could eat.
1: <laughs> and the chance to work yeah. with Chris Wheeler.
2: And the chance to work with Chris Wheeler and Dennis Lehman and uh, Adele at the time, uh, Mizzie and not McDonald and uh, and a lot of really great people who have. Uh, you know i've been fortunate enough to develop lifelong friendships with.
0: yeah and how things have changed ed it's unbelievable i mean back then it was it really was a one-man show with uh with larry and 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 as you mentioned uh i mean you you were an intern uh and there was some staff there but uh you know now we have such a a large staff but uh, how was your relationship with uh larry and, and and working with him that that first time as an intern
2: it, it was great on on all. Again, there, there were so many great people there, and and uh, Larry gave me he gave me an opportunity to do things. Uh, just just getting the internship was terrific. Uh, never really expected it to happen, uh, but uh, as the season progressed, Larry, uh, you know, Larry was was candid with me that they weren't going to have any openings, full time openings, at the end of the '77 season. Uh, and but then offered to write letters of recommendation to all the clubs, which led to my uh, getting my first full time job with the Astros in November of 77, but yeah, there's so many great people. You know, you talk about the two of you having that relationship with the fanatic. My, my relationship with the fanatic goes back uh, a lot further than you guys, because uh, the person that I, uh, that I shared an office with in 1977 was a guy named Dave Raymond, Hmm. uh, who went went on to have a, have a lot of uh, experience hanging around the fanatic. And, and uh, I tell people, I was that close to possibly uh, having that job to hang out with the fanatic. instead I took a (laughs) full-time job at Houston.
0: And I've always said it—you would have made a great mascot. <laughs> no, he, he was saying well, the assistant. I know to the, the assistant. I know, but uh, you know, still, well, I, 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 I
2: have to I have to—I <laughs> have to do confess the one thing I—I I, uh, I did kidnap the uh, the pirate parrot uh, once uh, when I was the PR director of the Pirates. Uh, our daughter Erin, who we just talked about, I think it was her second birthday. Uh, the pirate parrot showed up in our front yard. And uh, uh, But I made sure he got back to the ballpark in time to uh, to appear at the next game. <laughs> wow. so the, there, there, there are photographs of the uh, of the Pirate Parrot in my front yard, and I am not in the picture. So you <laughs> take it from there.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, so then you went from Houston to Pittsburgh. But then I think uh, you landed a job with Tal Smith Enterprises in Houston. Uh, Tal S- Smith, who was involved with the Astros at one point, right? And right, that yeah. probably gave you a lot of preparation for what – what you then became after that because you worked on a lot of arbitration cases, right? Uh, involving all the different major league teams. Tell us about you yeah, know, wor- working for well, Tal Smith.
2: Well that that was really uh, when I went to work Tal had been the general manager of the Astros when I was there and uh and was dismissed after we lost the in the playoffs to the Phillies in nineteen eighty. And in eighty one I left the, the Astros, went to the Pirates as, as their PR director. But you know, I went I went to work for Tal uh, one because of our association, but two I felt that because I did aspire uh, to get into the the baseball administration side, I thought that the experience that I could get working for Tao would be very beneficial. And, you know, we represented at one time, we had had represented 18 of the clubs Hmm. uh, in arbitration cases. And that that really, really solidified my background with regard to contract negotiations and and, uh, statistical analysis and those types of things. And and uh, fortunately for me, a, a good friend, Tony Siegel, had been the general man- or the assistant GM in, uh, in Philadelphia. Tony got a promotion, uh, went to the San Diego Padres, which opened up uh, his job uh, with the Phillies. Lee Thomas was the general manager at the time, and I know that, uh, that Dave Montgomery and some others uh, put me on Lee's radar screen, and, and I was fortunate in, uh, in uh, I guess it was, I do remember, 89? Uh, no, probably earlier than that, but... Uh, that the yeah, I it was the 18, 1989 that the opportunity presented itself for me to come in and, uh, and, and re-engage with the Phillies at that point in time. Yeah,
0: yeah, you really seem to be on a fast track, Ed. It, it is amazing how, uh, you know, you, you you kind of were PR director, you know, what, two years out of college for Pittsburgh, and, uh, and then that great experience at Tal Smith. You mentioned you wanted to get into the baseball administration side, but were you specifically thinking, you know, hey, someday, you know, with all this great experience, you know, uh, maybe someday I could you know, run a team as a general manager. Was that thought well, ever at,
2: in your head? At, you know, it, it, at, at that point in time, my, my, my ultimate goal was to be an assistant GM in all candor because you, know, you have to remember that uh, historically, uh, even into the, into the late 70s and early 80s, the, the majority of general managers in the game had, had uh, major league or pro- at least professional playing experience and it seemed to be a, a pretty big criterion for people in the position to hire. So I, I didn't think it was realistic, uh, but you know, fortunate enough, Lee, Lee gave me tremendous exposure when I was his assistant, um, going out and seeing players and, and being part of, of all of our conversations on trades, and, and it really lit the fire. Um, did I ever think that any of this was going to happen uh, in Philadelphia? No. Uh, the, the, the fact that The people uh, had thought enough of me from my time as an intern there to to, uh, make Lee aware of of my interest in in working uh, on the baseball administration side uh, that that really played a huge role in in me getting my foot in the door and uh, a bittersweet moment when when Lee was dismissed as the general manager. But uh, Dave Montgomery at that point in time was was making the decisions and and felt that I was the right guy for the job to succeed Lee and... and, uh, you know, ended up with eight years of, uh, of, of pretty good service there in, the, in that particular seat.
0: Yeah, working with Lee, uh, you know, his claim to fame, you know, with the Phillies certainly was kind of constructing that 1993 team. Um, what did you learn from, from Lee in putting that team together? Um, and uh, yeah, well, what was that experience like putting that cra- crazy team together?
2: Well, it, it was incredible. The work that Lee did at that point in time was incredible. It started, uh, you know, well before the, the 93 season. When you think about, you know, right out of the chute, he came in and and, uh, and made the deals that brought Terry Mulholland and John Cruck and Randy Reddy and and, uh, and and a number of other guys that played significant roles going forward with the club. And then, you know, we got to the point in, in 92 where you know, we, we still hadn't, gotten to anywhere close to where we thought we needed to be and there was a sentiment in the organization at that point in time that we needed to to to, uh to hit it big with a guy like bobby veneer or david cohn and lee lee had a lot of conversations with bill giles and others and felt that we we needed to go out and, and make uh make multiple moves and that winter meetings was you know really where the the whole thing came together when we were able to go out and and uh and get larry anderson and and uh and Pete Incavilla, Mill Thompson, uh, Jim Eisenreich, uh, a lot of guys that uh, that turned out to be the key, you know, some key elements to that that club that obviously was led by, by people like Dykstra and and uh, and Darren Dalton and Kurt Schilling, but uh, but Lee's, Lee's ability to be aggressive at the right time and, and really have have great instincts as to what the club needed, you know, played a, played a key role. And and honestly, I was I was there sort of to to help carry the water at that point in time, but I tried to pay attention to what, uh, you know, what messages uh, he was sending along the way. And, and again, he gave me gave me the opportunity to get out there and, and actually see and evaluate players. And uh, and I'd like to think that that's one of the reasons why we were able to get Bobby Abreu was because uh, Lee gave me the chance to uh, to go out and watch Houston for two states straight springs. And I kept coming back, telling him about Bobby and uh, when the opportunity presented to, to ourselves to uh, to make the move. At the expansion draft that year for Kevin Stocker, we were able to do it and, and uh, obviously got great service out of Bobby going forward. But it, w- it was a great experience working you know, those, those eight years for Lee.
1: Yeah, Ed, you became the general manager in the spring of 1998. And just from your tenure, tenure, you can just all the different players that, that came through the system or we've acquired, you know, whether it's Brett Myers, Pat Burrell, Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, Cole Hamels, Ryan Madsen, um, Chooch, you know, there's just there's a lot of uh, that building block that eventually became the 2008 World Series team. Uh, tell us about some of those players, uh, either through the draft or you know acquiring them that uh, that really stood out.
2: Well, I, I, the two points I'd like to make be, before we get into the specifics: of it, one, I I firmly and I actually had lunch today with uh, Steve Novarita and Dicky Knowles, uh, two great Phillies employees. Love those guys. And, yeah. uh, and we were talking about a lot of different things, and I, I made the point to both of them today that the, to me the most important hire uh, in in my in my memory uh, that the Phillies ever made was Mike Arbuckle yep. as our scouting director, uh, because Mike really uh, really set the stage for what Dave Montgomery and I talked about both privately and publicly quite a bit, which was to get good and stay good. That was the the goal that we had set. And, you know, we we knew that. That uh, in the veteran stadium era that we had to, uh, from an economic standpoint, we couldn't compete uh, at a level that would have been commensurate with the size of, a, the size of our, our, uh, our footprint. Uh, but we knew that getting into a new ballpark would, would change that environment. But we needed to make slow, steady progress and, uh, and not just try to go out there and, and have like the 93 club, which in all you know, Canada was probably built for that one big run and maybe a second run before the 94 strike but we wanted something that was going to be sustainable and that was the goal and and, and Mike and and the scouting director or Mike and the scouting staffs work uh played a huge role in in building that 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 cornerstone group that we were able to move forward with going you know going into the future and you know saying you know for, for your guys benefit uh, winning in 08, I I wish it had happened in 05 <laughs> which would have benefited me a little bit more but but uh but the goal was to get good and stay good and and I take a lot of pride in the work that we were able to do as a unit to uh, to make that happen.
0: Yeah, and I know you've been asked this before, Ed, but, uh, you know, sitting at home and, and watching the Phillies win in 08 uh, must have been gratifying for you, right? And then certainly, you know, Pat Gillick uh, mentioning you in the in the post-game, uh, you know, national TV interview that, you know, this is Ed Wade's doing, you know. Uh, what were you feeling when you, when you saw the Phillies finally win it in 08? <laughs>
2: Well, I, I was happy for them. I, I, I and this will not be the first time that I've confessed this, but uh, when you guys won in 08, I was at that point the general manager of the Astros, and I was sound asleep <laughs> in, yeah. in my apartment in Houston. And my phone—I started getting text messages from people saying, "You know, this wasn't it great what uh, what Pat Gillick said," so on and so forth. <laughs> and at that point, I realized the Phillies had won the World Series, and then and then later found out what what Pat had said. I, I, I mean, I I really felt. In, in in retrospect uh, that what what Pat said that night probably uh, sort of rehabilitated my whatever in Philadelphia because it wasn't certainly portrayed that way at the end of the five season uh, but for somebody of Pats stature uh, to uh, you know to, to to give give me a pat on the back at that point I, I really thought that it it, uh, it legitimized the hard work that we had done and and I also make the point that Pat made a lot of very significant changes to uh, to what he inherited in 05 when you start talking about you, know, you said you had Brad Lidge on the show earlier and, and some of the other things that he had done there to uh, you know to, to put that club together and, and put it over the over the edge you know it's it's not easy to get close uh, it's, it's a lot it's even harder to get get over the uh, you know get to the other side of the mountain and be able to actually actually climb to the top and thats that's what Pat was able to, uh, to, to achieve. Uh, with what he did uh, between '06 and 08. And,
1: Ed, one of your, arguably probably the best move you made, uh, which we're all thankful, yes, uh, we are. is you hired Charlie Manuel, and that was not an easy hire because, you know, I remember all the different uh, people that were involved, the managers that were that were in the running for it. Uh, I know a lot of the fans, a lot of talk radio, they wanted Jim Leyland because he had had, you know, uh, he's won a World Series before. And you had hired uh, Charlie as... Uh, as a paceist as, as, as kind of a scout, right as a kind of a consultant type and then he then he got in the running and then you hired Charlie. Tell us about what went into that. what, 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 were you, what, what was going through your head when you were kind of interviewing him and, and knowing that the popular opinion was you know, possibly Jim Leyland because it obviously ended up being a great move.
2: Well there, there are a lot of different factors there. First of all, um, just creating the opening uh, for a manager was one of the most difficult things I've ever done because uh, in, and I've said this directly to, to Larry, Larry Bo is the smartest baseball guy I've ever been around. Uh, can, cannot overstate the, uh, the amount of respect I've got for Bo. So that to, to make the change when I did was very, very difficult. Uh, I, I I felt, we felt that what we had to do in looking at the, the composition of our club is try to find somebody that, that would fit the personalities of the team that we, the, the core nucleus that seemed to be forming there. And you mentioned Jim Leland's name. I mean, Don Baylor and, and, and all kinds of very, very qualified. Brady people. little, right. Was part of it. Uh, yes, Yeah. All, all kinds of, of people who are really, really qualified. had already had already shown their ability to win. And, and, you know, when I talk about Bo and, and how knowledgeable baseball guy he is, you know, Jim Leland uh, has to be mentioned in that conversation as well, but, but in all candor, We just felt that uh, from a time and circumstance point of view, and 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 I'm a big believer in in making decisions uh, with regard to the time and circumstance, the club that we had at that point in time needed somebody like Charlie uh, who who could put his arm around guys and and build their confidence, but at the same time, you know, let them know that that he was in charge. And I can remember, I, I, I I felt that part of, you know, one of the pluses of Charlie's character was that he was able to uh, to sort of ignore uh, the shots that were being taken at him when he first was hired. I mean, it, it was embarrassing some of the things that were being said yep. about him. Yep. Uh, and uh, and now the guy can't pay for a meal <laughs> anywhere in the in the in the tri-state area uh, because because people found out that that this was a guy he had been successful uh, in his in his managerial work in Cleveland. Uh, you know, Jim told me one of the big big reasons that we hired Charlie at that time is that uh, is that Jim really, really thought the world of him. And I thought that, um, you know, candidly, I thought it would, would be a plus for us if we could bring Charlie on board uh, as, as sort of an impetus for uh, for Jim to leave Cleveland and come to us. So, you know, those types of things were linked together. But but Charlie, you know, on his own merits, exclusive of his relationship with Jim Tomey or what he had done in Cleveland in the past, uh, he legitimized what we were trying to do. He understood what we were trying to do. The players grasped his approach uh, he made the game fun for them, uh, but at the same time, this is a guy with a tremendous amount of experience and uh, and you know play it forward and see what he was able to accomplish. It's uh, it's it's a testament to uh, you know not necessarily those of us that said yeah Charlie's the right guy. It's a testament to Charlie and and for the players to uh, to buy into uh, to his approach to the game.
0: Uh, Ed, you mentioned one of the great free agent signings in Philly's history in Jim Tomey. And uh, I know it was, you know, really your, um, you know, you, you really had the bullseye on Jim um, to help revive, uh, you know, Philly's baseballs. we went into, you know, the new ballpark. Uh, I know you, you know, you, you wrote an email and really, uh, you know, told him how much uh, Philly, you know, would be a perfect match for him. How confident were you that he would leave Cleveland and come to Philly?
2: I, I wasn't, in all in all candor, I, I was not confident. You know, we, again, we had we had we had professed for a long time, we being primarily myself and Dave Montgomery, that the get good and stay good, and that started in you know that just started uh, in December of '97 uh, when when I was named interim general manager. <clears throat> People heard us say it a lot. And uh, some people bought into it. Some people didn't. Some people who were some guys who were playing for us at the time didn't buy into it. They, 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 they expressed skepticism as to the, the commitment of ownership and so on and so forth. And, and uh, you know, we, we kept saying, look, you know, when we get to the new ballpark, it's, it's going to open up different revenue streams. We're going to be able to, uh, you know, to, to work at a level that's commensurate with the size of the market, so on and so forth. And lo and behold, a year before we moved into the new ballpark, knowing what it was going to mean, uh, we, you know, we, we put the, the pedal to the floor and started going after the, the premium free agents. And, and the premier guy that we felt that, that fits best for our club at that point in time was Jim. Uh, but getting back to your question, how confident, I, I, I wasn't confident because I knew the relationship in Cleveland. I knew uh, that Mark Shapiro and, and the people, the, the hierarchy with the Indians, were very interested in keeping him there. They were aggressive on their front. Jim had, had had roots, you know, in Peoria, which wasn't that far away from from Cleveland. Uh, but you know, I sat at my at my desk one morning, and and uh, Pat Rooney, uh, Jim's agent, called, and I'm thinking, you know, he said, he said, hey, this is Pat, and I'm thinking, well. <laughs> Here comes the bad news. And he said, I just want to let you know that Jim's coming. And, Bang. Nice. <laughs> you know, it was like I just sat there and stunned silence for a minute. And, and I hung up the phone and, and uh, didn't say anything to the people in the office. Uh, you know, the, the people that I work with uh, so closely there, Susan Ingersoll and Reuben and others. I went over to Dave Montgomery's office on the other end of the building. And, and uh, we're actually across the hall at that point because we're at the vet. And I told him what what was going on, and I came back and told the rest of our folks uh, that we had uh, that we had reached the finish line with them, and, and, it, and it worked in our favor. So you know, we had signed David Bell. We were chasing pitching around at the same time. We thought we had guys coming, and and then they signed other places, you know, Tom Glavin and people like that. But the cornerstone move and and the thing I think that puts the uh, that sort of was the signifying uh, uh, move of what we were trying to do, and and sort of you know, we're on the right track here was with, with for Jim to, uh, to put on the number 25 and, and, and get into red tennis drives. Well,
0: and, uh, on behalf of every Phillies fan out there, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know I've, this is my 33rd year with the Phillies, and I was born a Phillies fan, and to me the 2003 season was one of the best individual uh, performances by a player, I think. I mean, it's just uh, – it was must-see TV, right, Ed? I mean, he'd step up to the plate and, uh, you know, y- you just thought something great was going to happen. It-, it was awesome, awesome.
2: Yeah, it was. He, he was he, he was everything Everything that was advertised, everything that we have been told. About. You know, Ruben played with – Ruben Amaro played with him in Cleveland. He played for Charlie. So Ruben knew him personally, and, and, and I kept hearing from him and our scouts and other people about – his character and his makeup and his work ethic and, and the impact that he's going to have both on and off the field kind of thing. And I'm thinking, there's no way we're going to get this guy. <laughs> right. You know, it, it was sort of, it was sort of, it was sort of too good to be true. And then he shows up and you find out that you really were only told about like 87% of what he's really all about. That other 13% was just so great that people weren't even talking about it. Um, you know, the dramatic home run and, and uh, you know, and, uh, with his family sitting in the, in the, in the box upstairs and things of that nature. But, you know, at the same time, I also have to point out that remember there, there was a, we had a pretty good uh, up and coming first baseman in the organization at that time. And and people were sort of scratching their heads and saying, you know, why would they, why would they invest in a guy like this? When they've got this guy, Ryan Howard in their system that they, that they talk nonstop about and We just felt that Ryan was, Ryan was a little bit away from where, uh, where he needed to be to be competitive at the big league level and we didn't want to rush him through and uh, you know er- everything seemed to work out very well. Uh, I will point out that it, after we had signed Tommy, um, you know the Ryan's family and his agent uh, reached out to me wanting us to trade him and, and uh, I declined the opportunity and uh, fast forward to about 2010 I think it was I was walking uh, walking uh, from the uh, from the team bus in uh, in Philadelphia, uh, past the home clubhouse, and Ryan was sitting outside on his cell phone, and he put the phone down for a second, and I said, "Glad I didn't trade you," and he said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> so I, I think I think it worked out for everybody along the way, but uh, but a lot of this a lot of this starts in and finishes with the impact that that Tomy had in legitimizing what we were trying to do.
0: No question, no question. And, you know, John and I, uh, we've said it so many times, right, John, Citizens Bank Park is the best baseball park in in baseball. We think we might be a little biased, but, um, uh, you know, you had a a say in kind of building – the, at least the, the service level, right? I mean, in the, the clubhouse, the oval design, how much fun, uh, you know, was it, you know, and I'm working with David and Richard Dietz and some of the gang uh, in, you know, and the engineers, of course, and the architects, but, you know, kind of, you designed some of the key elements of that ballpark.
2: Well, you know, John, John can attest to this because having been through the, through the same period of time that, that uh, David and Richard Dietz uh, really let people, uh, get involved in the areas that they were that they were responsible for, whether it was design of the office upstairs or the clubhouses or where the batting cage should be, um, and and I think I think for the most part we we got it right. Um, you know the, the the proof is in the performance, obviously, but yeah, it's a it's a tremendous ballpark. Um, it it is unfortunate for some reason uh, uh, we didn't have a power rally for the first year, <laughs> and it got a little hairy with balls hitting and flying out of. Uh, left center field at the place, but uh, they were able to make enough adjustments to to, to sort of quiet that down a little bit. But I, I, again, I I think whether it's, whether it's building a ball club from a personnel standpoint or building, building a a stadium uh, or, or really anything, if you trust the people that you have working for you, you've got to, uh, you've got to give them the, the the autonomy and the authority to to do what they think is, is right. And, you know, Knowing that there's an accountability factor, I refer to it as 3A: autonomy to to uh, you know, to work your area, authority to make decisions, and and accountability that you know those what you do along the way you're you're going to be accountable for whether whether it works or it doesn't work. And David had the faith in a lot of people to be able to uh, to do those types of things, and and forever will be respected by not only the people who work uh, for him and with him, but uh, but the fans who get the chance to come out and see the uh, see that beautiful ballpark. Uh, Hopefully every day this summer for and 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 summers to come for a long long time.
1: Yeah, um, and then you went to the Houston Astros, and same thing. You you were charged with a rebuild over there, uh, and you know when you look at again, I know you have scouting, uh, scouting directors, and you have other everyone under you, but ultimately these were all under your your watch. Where you know you had Al, Altuve uh, came up, you you uh, drafted uh, Dallas Keuchel and uh, George Springer. I mean, key players that uh, for what you know, the Astros obviously won in two thousand seventeen. So, did that make you feel good? You didn't get to see it again. You didn't get to see it the final process, but it must have have made you feel good knowing that uh, that you had laid that foundation or helped to lay the foundation. Yeah,
2: it it, it was a different approach in in Houston. (laughs) I I had the fortune of becoming the general manager like five days after Craig Biggio retired. (laughs) So, so there goes there there goes three thousand hits out the door. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, we, we really had a challenge there. Again, you know, I, I, I paid homage to, to Mike Arbuckle and the scouting staff for the core nucleus. They built, realistically, when I got to Houston, we were in a bit of a, 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 a bad spot with regard to the depth in our system. So in, in, uh, in 08, we had to build a club that uh, was, was primarily made of, of seasoned veterans. And uh, we went down to the last day of the season. I can remember you guys, you guys won in Chicago. Uh, we played it. We swept the Nationals and I remember sitting in the ballpark in uh, in Washington and, and uh, listening to the last out uh, where you guys got into the playoffs and, and we went home <laughs> at that point in time. And, and uh, so but it was it was a veteran club uh, that we uh, that we were able to put together. And, and at the same time, it allowed us to to bring along people, as, as you mentioned, like like Altuve and Keiko. And uh, I really I think that uh, not that long ago, maybe two years ago, there were like 27 players who had been in the organization at the time that I got fired in 2011 who ended up playing in the big leagues. Mm. So we, you know, we we managed to do some things along the way. Some of the guys prospered as uh, as members of the Astros. Others like J.D. Martinez and and some others went other places and uh, and and put together tremendous careers But that. That, that was that's your responsibility to uh, is to build it. Uh, you know, hopefully as quickly as you can, but you have to build it to. Uh, be able to sustain success, and and uh, like to think that some of the things that we did way back in the uh, in the the 2009 2010 period there uh, you know, paid dividends down the road for them.
1: And how is the uh, how is the the position of general manager? How has that changed uh, from you know your time with, with Phillies, Houston to what it is now? What's, what what do you think some of the biggest differences are in how the approach of the job?
2: Well, the, obviously, the economics have changed. Uh, you know, the, 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 the types of – there's a lot more zeros on the contracts these days than there used to be, and, and, they're, on, and they're on the back end. Uh, so the economics have, have, have become so impactful. Um, you know, you, you've got to deal there, – there, there's, there's a lot of uh, – you know, you've got to deal with the, with baseball tax structure and, uh, you know, the luxury tax, so on and so forth. Uh, the biggest change is, is on the analytics side. Um, again, i we, we've talked about it. My, my first nine years in baseball, I was the PR guy, which is at that time was the, the, the chief statistician on the club. And then, and then worked for Cal Smith for, for three years doing arbitration cases where it was all player analysis and, and, and com- comparative analysis and things of that nature. All of that though, was, you know, at that, at that point in time was cutting edge, but it's not now. Uh, so it's a whole different world that, uh, that the executives live in from the standpoint of having to uh, embrace, understand and embrace uh, the, the, those types of analyses and, and try to incorporate it into your, you know, the building of your club, how you run your farm systems and things of that nature. Um, I guess I'll editorialize a little bit. I don't know that it's all been for the best uh, from the standpoint of the level of, of how interesting our game is these days. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, I know. I know. When you start to talk like this, you sound like a dinosaur. But but I do think I do think you can look at you can look at uh, you know historically look at the game on the field and how it was played and, and, and uh, when when guys were stealing bases and and hits and hit and runs and, and starting pitchers going deep into games and and, uh, and catchers calling their own games things of that nature. Uh, it probably wasn't as sophisticated. Certainly wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. But I'm not sure it, it wasn't uh, a lot more interesting back then than it is now. And people play, say the things are cyclical or, or the pendulum swings back and forth. We've gone pretty far on the analytic side at this point. Uh, hopefully, at some point in time, there is some equilibrium and we get back to uh, uh, to, the, to some of the Philly clubs that we just talked about. I mean, you look at what St. Louis accomplished with, uh, with the guys at the top of their order who could who could run and change the game with their legs. Um, and and some of the great pitchers, pitchers that we've seen over the years who've gone deep into games and you know threw a bunch of complete games up there. Uh, again, I know I sound like a like a <laughs> dinosaur, but but I, I I I I view it through my prism and and through my experience, and uh, and I just felt that the game was was you know maybe not can't say the word more fun than it than it is now, but I do think I do I do think it was more interesting on a lot of different fronts.
0: Yeah, I think John and I agree with you there, Ed. Uh, Switching it up a little bit, we John and I know that you you uh, love the skydive. You got into that, and I gotta ask you did Did you start that when? Um, I know we always had the Navy leap frogs um, jump in. Ryan going to naval, <laughs> and I, naval I academy and naval academy. Yeah, like how did you get into uh, starting uh, that hobby of jumping out of planes <laughs> with a, only a parachute? Would, I would never <laughs> do unless
1: someone had actually <laughs> pushed me and forced me out there.
2: You know, people ask the question the little line in in skydiving is, people say, well, why did you why did you jump out of that plane?" And you say, "Well, because somebody left the door open." <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we, but but you know, yeah. Ryan, our son, Ryan, was an '06 graduate of the Naval Academy, and and while he was in the academy, the leapfrogs made up primarily of 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 seals would jump in on opening day, and and I went down and introduced myself to them uh, probably in '03 and got to know some of them pretty well. And then in, in 05, uh, after I'd been dismissed, uh, I was at the, uh, at the Army-Navy game and uh, sat with one of the guys named Nick White, uh, retired SEAL at this point, but it's still an active SEAL then. And I took him over to a Flyers game after the Army-Navy game. We're sitting there, and I said, well, how do you, how do you, how do you learn how to skydive? He said, well, there's three of us on the, on the jump team that's at LeapFrog. They're the licensed instructors. If you come to San Diego, we'll teach you. He census told me that he's made that offer to about 1500 people and I'm the only guy that ever shows up. Wow. Uh, wow. So, so I went out there in, in, in February of Oh six. And, uh, we spent about, about 90 minutes in his garage where he showed me different, you know, different uh. techniques on balance and stuff like that. And went out the next day and we did seven jumps. So, uh, I ended up with 41, um, subsequently unrelated. I've had, uh, I've had a back surgery and a knee surgery. So I don't do that stuff anymore. But you know, when, when, uh, you know, when when people ask about stuff like that, I, th- I think 41 is enough to brag about. And uh, but it's, it, it, I I think anybody who's got any sense of uh, of boy, I'd like to try to do that sometimes should should go do a tandem and see what it's all about. You never know, uh, you know how far it'll take you. And uh, um, you know, once you get out, the deal is to make sure that, uh, that you're walking away from your landing, and I walked away from my last landing, so all, all's good.
0: <laughs> all's good. Well, you're a braver man than me and John, that's for sure, Ed. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I want to ask you about is you wrote a novel, too. How, how great is that? Um, I just think that is uh, really cool. Um, I guess um, you had a little bit of time on your hands, and uh, you used that journalism degree uh, to, to write a book called Delayed Honor.
2: Yeah, you know, between, between 05 and 07, between the two general managers, style, I was scouting for San Diego, and it was the first time, again, I started the day after my 21st birthday, so I never had an off season before, um, and so I, I had those, those two winners and just uh, had an idea for a book based in Northeastern Pennsylvania with a little bit of a Navy SEAL tint to it and and, uh, and some of that stuff, and just started doing it as a mental exercise, and i put it i set it down when i became gm in houston and then picked it back up again uh in 2011 and and finished it and self-published it so there's probably a lot of typos and the layout's not great and i, I think you can get it on on amazon on kindle for like 99 cents but again it was a mental exercise i enjoyed doing it and uh, you know someday maybe the spark will hit me again but it's yeah you know, it, it was fun to do it was, it was again just just trying to keep busy and uh and uh, as, a, as an outstanding C student at Temple University Journalism <laughs> Program, I thought it was appropriate that I uh, give something back.
1: <laughs> well, I, I talked to Gene Diaz today. who uh, Gene's a PR director for Houston who used to work with us. Uh, he mentioned yeah. that uh, when uh, you were with Houston, you took, you took a lot of people on a road trip uh, to basically check out the Navy SEALs out in San Diego. You guys did a little tour of that. And I also know that uh, one of my favorite books was Lone Survivor, and I know you've gotten very close to Marcus Luttrell. Uh, who is the one featured in that book uh, to tell us about that. I mean, that
2: yeah, it, it's just, it's just a great community of guys. Um, you know, we we're, we're, we're very fortunate to, to uh, have had people willing to step, step up and, and protect our country. Uh, and I take pride in, in our son Ryan's service time. I pr- take pride in, in the fact that our daughter, Erin worked you know, for a time out of, in the Pentagon for the department of the army and what Marina has done for wounded warriors and so on and so forth. But, yeah, we had a chance. Uh, we had a chance to uh, to take our guys uh, out to Coronado when we we're playing the Padres, and, and they gave them a gave them a tour of uh, of what they were doing, all that kind of stuff. And it's it's really all that the guys could talk about uh, for the next couple of days. The Marcus Luttrell thing. Marcus is from uh, Tech, not far from Houston. And if anybody who's either seen the movie or or or, uh, or read the book Lone Survivor will, will know his backstory, but um, i took him uh, i had him come over when i was the general manager in houston uh, before a game i said hey do you have, do you have 5 minutes to uh, to give a uh, speech to our players and he said oh sure so i brought him in after batting practice and and on me notes to me a, a bunch of the guys had read the book this was before the movie came out and uh, he starts talking about you know uh, you guys are ball players i'm a gunfighter and, and uh, you know you you, you veteran guys uh, you know you've got to get here early to, to set an example, but you young guys have to be here early to make sure everything's ready and he's, he's going on and on. I'm looking at the clock because we're supposed to we're supposed to play a game at 705 and half our guys aren't even dressed yet mm-hmm. and they're just would they would have sat through the whole night and right. just missed the game listening to what he had to say. But you know, p- people like that uh, what what they, what they did for our country and and then to be willing to go and, and tell the story uh, as to what they did. Uh, Is terrific. And then you start to think about so many guys who have done that, who don't tell their story, uh, who don't look for anybody's attention. And and some guys, you know, the Wounded Warriors and PTSD and people like that, uh, be they SEALs or or just enlisted guys who who went and served, you know, what they went through uh, on our behalf, you know, what do you say about them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and somebody's—I've been with the uh, Liberty USO for many years, and it's uh, you know, thank you for everything you've done, because uh, you can't thank them enough for for protecting our freedoms. And I remember when you know, uh, when,
2: I, when I was I, in, when I was in Houston, we actually every Sunday, uh, every Sunday uh, before the game, we would bring in a bunch of the guys, uh, the wounded warriors from the area, and the, we actually there's a thing called a challenge coin. Yeah. Uh, in the military, we got Astros challenge coins made up, but. You know these these guys they were they were so grateful just to you know to be around the ballpark and introduce them to a couple of players and stuff like that. You know no big deal as you guys know, it's all in the course of of what we do all the time. But we have to remember that that this is, you know for for us, it's just a five minute deal for for these guys, whether they're they're military guys or little children. This is a lifetime memory for them, and and it's important. I thought it was important uh, to impress upon players that, that we we as an industry and, and they as, as very, very visible members of, of our industry, you know, we, we owe it to our fans, particularly guys like this, but we owe it to our fans to create those lifetime memories. It's going to take you 10 seconds to sign an autograph, but these guys will talk about it forever, and, and I, I think that's important for us to, to never lose sight of the fact that uh, that baseball is a public entity, uh, we are the fans' game. And again, whether it's whether it's, whether it's Wounded Warriors or a 10-year-old kid or, or a grandfather and, and a grandson together, uh, getting a chance to have that, that brief interaction uh, creates a lifetime of discussions and memories for an entire family.
0: Well, well said, Ed. And I do remember uh, when your son, Ryan, was uh, accepted into the Naval Academy. I just remember you, you know, you were beaming like a very proud papa. And I think you had the, uh, the Navy baseball cap before, uh, you know, you know as, <laughs> as soon as you could get it, you know. Uh, and I remember it just it was an exciting day, not obviously for you, but for all of us, you know, at the Phillies family. I think we were just thrilled uh, for you and, and uh, Ryan for sure.
2: Well, I pre- I appreciate that and you know well, hopefully hopefully Philadelphia continues to be the the primary landing spot for the Army Navy game I would, I yes. would highly recommend to to in- anybody as uh, any type of fan or or supporter of the military uh, you know go go buy some tickets and go see an Army Navy game this absolutely experience like none other
0: absolutely you got to do it at least once in your life uh all right so uh and we might not have uh, warned you but uh there's there is a quiz at the end of our podcast
2: <laughs>
1: hey, <laughs> it's and, a very uh, easy quiz
2: it's it's it, easy. It's, it's is it is it multiple choice <laughs> it is multiple it is. choice <laughs> yeah so you all got right, a chance. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go then. okay
1: <laughs> and it's all about your life ed so so you have an inside advantage of doing well
2: well, uh, we've already established that I'm not from Western Pennsylvania, so right. we go from there. Yeah, Tom would fail. Even with multiple oh, choice, he would gosh. fail. I can't
1: but and it. actually, that's part of your first question. So we have, I have eight questions um i think you need to get about six six out of eight six out of eight, and a out of eight and you're a winner. winner we don't know what you win well let,
2: let, let, let me ask this question if i get all these right uh is my fee for doing this higher than it would have been
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: yes okay yes. i'm good to go yeah. let's go you
1: get one beer instead of no beers right
2: <laughs> i don't drink all I'll take the right. cash. Well, not a lot.
1: we'll take you out we're at chickies and pete's we'll take you <laughs> out to a nice dinner at chickies and pete's how about that <laughs> there you go all right all right Are you ready on well, first of all we didn't even talk that Ed married you married when you were an in, when you were an intern I guess you met her your wife was an usherette with the Phillies right
2: yeah I was standing at the uh, at the elevator at Fourth Floor at Veterans Stadium and one of the hot pants girls walked up this was probably around June of 1977 and January of 1981 with Gary Maddox as my best man. Uh, Roxanne and I got married here in Glassboro, New Jersey. That's great. That's uh, great. 40, Forty years and change ago.
1: Oh well, congratulations. That's great. All right. Thank so he- you. Here we go. We go into the silliness of the quiz. And your first question... Uh, as we mentioned, you are from Carbondale, PA, which is not in Western PA, no which is in Northeastern right. PA. Tom is looking at me with daggers in his eyes. All right. I'm going to name three, four celebrities. Uh, one, one of these celebrities is not from Carbondale. Three of them are. Okay, so you're going okay. to tell me which one is not from Carbondale. so uh, A is Robert Wood Johnson, who's the founder of Johnson and Johnson. B is Terry Pegula, I think that's his name, who's the owner of the Pegula. Buffalo, uh Pegula. sorry, the owner of Buffalo Bills and the Sabres, and whose daughter uh, was just in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. I think she lost yep. though. Uh, C is D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, and D is General Jerome F. O'Malley, who was U.S. Air Force four-star general. So is it Robert Wood Johnson, Terry Pegula? Uh, did I say that wrong again? D. Snyder or Jerome, General <laughs> let Jerome let O'Malley? Get,
2: let me let me get off the hook there. I, 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 I don't <laughs> respect anybody from Twisted Sister coming from <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, oh my you gosh. are one for one. All right, this one gets even sillier. Number two, you graduated from Temple in 1977. Which celebrity did not go to Temple? So again, three went to Temple, one did not. Comedian and actor Bob Saget, uh, Brett Summers from Match Game '76, she was one of the big glasses. Uh, John Oates from Hall and Oates, and Norman Fell from Three's Company. So
2: is it? That's a tougher one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, uh, I'm since, since the, the match game one was so far out, I'm going to say her. <laughs>
1: yes. Good you, call. Yes. Ed. And uh, in, in the podcast, I just let you know, uh, for if, if we have you on again, I always have a match game 76 person on there, whether it's Nipsey Russell, <laughs> Bill Cullen, Norman Fanny Fell Flag, went to Temple. Norman huh? Fell went How to about Temple. That? Yeah. But that, see? That. You learned that. That's cool. All right. this is This is a straight out answer. It's not, this one's not multiple choice, but I think you should have an inside track on it. Uh, your first draft as GM of, of Phillies was 1998, and you picked Pat Burrell with the number one over, overall pick. you the Phillies' did. Which future Phillies star was picked number 17 by the Astros in that 1998
2: draft? Well, probably mid. Brad Lidge Brad and also
1: Lidge. that draft Jason Michaels Ryan Madsen, Nick Punto mm. were all in that draft so uh, all right question you number know, pe- pe-
2: pe- 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 people actually think that I traded Lidge to the Phillies as a favor and and I, I and I, I need to I need to point out that that is not true I wasn't trying to do the Phillies any favor right. Well, you time. did
1: do us a favor
2: right? <laughs> but, thanks but, anyway but, right? but, thanks anyway but but, but, but I needed my need I needed Michael Bourne uh, to uh, yeah. to try to. Right. Try to build something there. But anyway, yeah, it was it, it was Brad Lidge, who's an outstanding guy, and I'm, I'm really happy for him. People people in, in Houston loved and adored him. They just felt He's that I needed to, uh, needed to get him into a different spot where we didn't have to face uh, Albert Pujols all the time.
1: Yeah, we had him on our show, and, and we love Brad Lidge. We so. love Brad, yeah. All right, the, the, number four, actually, while, during our uh, podcast, I scratched out my original question and came up with a new one because you mentioned the Baron. Uh, what year did the Baron start with the Phillies? The Baron is Larry Shank, longtime Phillies PR uh, VP and, and PR director. Did he start in 1970, 1968, 1964, or
2: 1960? 64.
1: 64 yeah. is correct. All right, you got four more questions.
2: I knew uh, it was either 1964 or 1893. So <laughs> I go
1: on the high side. <laughs> uh, you're gonna pay for that one by by Mr. Shank. All right, number question number five. You're on a roll. Four for four. Which of these acts was not a Bill Giles opening day act? Now, we had Bill Giles on, and, and we talked about this. Which, so three of these were an opening day act. One was not. Uh, a is Danger Doug. B is Benny the Bomb. C is Cannon Man. And D is Kite Man.
2: Uh, whoever the A was, was not.
1: Danger, Who's dangerous? Uh, I just made it you up. made that just up. Made okay. up. <laughs> All right. But, I,
2: but while, while we're on the subject, just to just interject, while we're on the subject, I talked a lot about Dave Montgomery. The Phillies would never have been the Phillies without Bill Giles on yep. any number of fronts. Yeah. exactly Bill, right. Bill Giles, you know, when I talked about Mike Garbuck, when I mentioned Dave Montgomery a lot, Bill, Bill Giles was the essence and the heart of the Phillies and and his his approach to things lasted for a very, very long time, and I hope people never forget that.
1: Completely agree. Yeah. Um, all right, so you have three more questions. You're on a roll. You're, you're batting 1,000 uh, right here.
2: So yeah. what is Which the – Which fan- 1,000 higher than I batted the Temple. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: What is the fanatic's girlfriend's name? Huh. Is it Fatima, Fatima, Philomena, Fiona, or Phyllis? Is it Fatima, Philomena, Fiona, or Phyllis? And this is the girlfriend. Uh,
2: my, guess, my guess would be Philomena.
0: <laughs> Tom? Oh, now it's Phyllis. Phyllis. Yeah, it's AFP.
2: So he dumped Philomena, huh? Yeah, he did. Because yeah. I've seen them out together.
0: Yeah, he dumped Philomena. <laughs> Is that yeah. what happened? Yeah. You know, Phoebe's the mom, and uh, yeah, Philomena, she was, she's yesterday's news, I think. <laughs>
2: Well, I knew it wasn't Phyllis because isn't isn't she the one that used to be on the statue with Phil?
0: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, she was one of the. uh, Do I get
2: bonus? Do I get bonus? You do. You do get bonus. We'll we'll make it up for
0: that. that. Yes. All right. So your last two questions. It's actually a different spelling if we're going to go there. Uh, Phyllis of the Colonial Phil and Phyllis is a different spelling than the girlfriend of
1: the fanatic. But
2: we're giving you the. You know what, Tom? Tom, can I tell you something? (laughs) People probably don't care.
1: (laughs) You think? (laughs) All right. The last two (laughs) questions are are parachute related. Okay, so we'll go back. So we talked about you like to sky jump. So, question number uh, seven is in 1944, during World War II, what country had the largest mass deployment of soldiers by parachute? So, in 1944, during World War II, what country had the largest mass deployment of soldiers by parachute? Is it France, Belgium, Netherlands, or Italy?
2: Oh, it was in the France for, for D-Day.
1: Actually, no. It was in Netherlands. In, uh, mm-hmm. It was Operation Market Garden where 20,000 oh, wow. Allied troops dropped by parachute and then another 14,000 by glider. How cool is that? Wow. wow. So that, That's 34. Yeah. Uh, one, one of our
2: scouts, one of our scouts that, that recently retired, one of our Philly scouts recently retired, Gordon Lakey, uh, we talked about skydiving once, and, and Gordon, I knew that he had been in the Army for a little while, he said that he did four jumps, but they were all night jumps. And I said, really, you, your first four jumps were night jumps? And he said, yeah, I didn't open my eyes. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would either. All right, the last
1: question is, uh, What is this is a fascinating question. What is the world record for the highest parachute jump? Mm. The highest parachute jump, is it A, 15 miles, B, 25 <laughs> miles, C, 10 miles, or D, 40 miles?
2: A, I remember the guy doing it, but I don't remember the number. I would say 15 miles. It's
1: 25 in Ooh. 2014. A guy named Alan Eustis. He wore a spacesuit and he leapt from a balloon yeah. uh, that was 25 miles above the Earth. He was going 800 miles per hour, uh, and he deployed the chute at 18,000 feet. Uh, which is basically about three point five miles Why? Why did he do that? I guess to be the <laughs> have the highest. So he could world be mentioned on
2: this very popular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly
1: right. I mean who would ever thought that Alan Eustace would be on our podcast, right?
2: <laughs> well you normally you normally just the factoid that the when when I was jumping we would go out of thirteen thousand feet and I would pull at five thousand and you fall the first you fall the first thousand uh, feet in ten seconds and then five and a half seconds per thousand feet after that. Huh. So you're, you're traveling at 120, about 120 miles an hour, uh, terminal velocity when you, when you pull the, pull the, uh, the cord to, uh, to pull your wow. shoot.
1: Well, if I did it, my velocity would be terminal, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would be done. Well, I would never do that. They used to
2: say, they used to say in the seals that, uh, if, uh, if you pull your main chute and it doesn't open, pull your reserve, and if, uh. If neither of those work, you've got about five and a half seconds to. Uh, you've got the rest of your life to figure it out. About five and a half <laughs> oh, seconds. Geez. And they and they said that if you hit the ground, the trick is to uh, grab the grass because it's not the landing that kills you; it's the bounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're they're, they're, they're a little dark humorous. Yeah, on that's things. very dark.
1: And <laughs> be, be careful. That's it. That's well, a, he's done. I the don't back do it anymore. Okay, the
2: I'm done. My wife became very. Very familiar with our life insurance agent, so I time to <laughs> right,
0: right. Uh, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's really great to hear from you. Uh, you know, hopefully we're going to have fans back. Hopefully we're going to have a fairly normal season this year, and uh, you know we hope to see you at the ballpark. And enjoy your grandchildren. Well,
2: good luck to you guys. I, I appreciate it, and uh, and all the best. All right. Great. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Right.
1: Uh, how about that, Ed Wade? You know what we, uh, you know. We, We work with all the, you know, GMs, obviously, and the players, and they come through, and you really get a, you know, long relationship with them. So, you know, and you never want to see someone, you know, GMs are hired to be fired, and Mm -hmm. managers are hired to be fired. And, you know, you go to someone like that, and you look at, you know, what he did to basically, again, he oversaw, and Mike Arbuckle was a big part of it, too, but really laid the foundation for two organizations to win the World Series. Um, And it's funny, during the Houston parade, uh, Jeff Lunau gave him credit. Gave Ed Wade credit, uh, just like you know uh, Dave Montgomery gave him credit. So, uh, you know what a great career. And I guess my one question, Tom, is that all these people that uh, start off as PR interns, then they go on to become you know uh, very yeah, famous GMs and greatness. Yeah. And I I worked in PR for a long time, and and what am I doing? I'm on this podcast with the best friend of the fanatic yeah, we're having a good time here at chickies and pizza <laughs> are and chickies and, pizza and having a good time but i just haven't gotten that elevated status i no. i guess i don't know what i did wrong
0: no you're not um <laughs> you're not you're not good you're hey we're having a good time john and what's cool to me too i think with ed wade um you know obviously it's it's it is one of those jobs you get hired to get fired uh and you know he knew um well it's it just kind of cool that i think people are really have come around to the fact that ed wade was a great general manager he really was uh you know phillies had to make a a a, a move when they did and uh but you know he's got a great track record and a great guy you know part of the phillies family so uh, it was great hearing from him yep great so i guess that wraps up another uh, edition of phillies backstage again
1: thanks for the folks here at chickies and pete's in warrington we're having a good time right john and we and our next uh guest We have no idea, but it'll be a surprise, (laughs) and uh, it'll be fun.
0: We're working it. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody,
1: and we'll see you next time on Philly's Backstage.